This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Big news. We're going to start the show off right away. Big news with uh, LRT in the hammer. To talk more about all of this, Minister of Transport for the Government of Ontario, Stephen Del Duca is with us and with us now. Hello, Mr. Del Duca. How are you today? I'm great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. So uh, why the visit to town today? What did you tell everybody? So there are actually three parts to my announcement today. Great news for Hamilton and all of the other communities across uh, Ontario that have transit systems. Over the next four years, the Ontario government will be doubling the amount of gas tax money that Hamilton receives to support its local transit needs without actually taking, uh, taking uh, any more money out of people's pocketbooks. So we're actually allocating double the funds to support local transit. That's number one. Number two, wanted to let folks know that we're uh, launching uh, what I guess I'll call a, a planning and analysis, a planning study and an analysis for a 16-kilometer bus rapid transit line that would connect uh, with the future Hamilton LRT uh, and connect it out to the airport potentially. It's about, 60, as I mentioned, about a 16-kilometer BRT. And then the last thing that I announced today was that we were releasing what's known as the Request for Qualifications for the LRT project that the Premier and I announced a number of months ago for Hamilton. So big news to the community and especially for those who support uh, building more transit to uh, service more neighborhoods and more people. Uh, obviously, you've decided to replace the spur line uh, going from the LRT down to the go. That was something that the Premier had noted when she came to announce that uh, you, of course, were going to fund all of this. Why the change of heart? Isn't it important to have the LRT linked to the go by rail? So the main part of the uh, the LRT will remain in place. What we noticed over the last uh, number of months doing both technical analysis, looking at ridership numbers, and also taking into account the, the feedback that we received through all of the public consultations around making sure that our investment of up to a billion dollars, our investment from the province of Ontario, was actually deployed so that we were serving as many people in as many different parts of Hamilton as possible providing enough connectivity for people who live and work in that wonderful community. We wanted to make sure that it made the most sense. So by taking out the spur, as you mentioned, which didn't perform particularly well in terms of projected ridership and replacing it and extending uh, it beyond that, beyond the LRT to, uh, to a BRT, actually means we can connect the LRT and our GO stations with, for example, Hamilton Airport and so much more. So I think it's great news for people who live in different parts of the city who might have felt that the original plan didn't necessarily provide them with more service. And at the same time, we're not taking anything away from the overall financial contribution the province is making. Our contribution is still at a billion dollars. We're going to get an LRT built. We're going to do more work on a BRT. We're going to give more people in more parts of Hamilton more transit. Uh, this certainly must appease uh, people on the mountain by spreading this uh, money out more. Was that the intention here? Was that what you were trying to do as well as link to the go? Well, listen, when you're making a once-in-a-generation commitment to a community like Hamilton, when you're, when you're actually saying it's going to be a billion dollars coming from the province of Ontario to support your transit needs for the next little while, uh, you want to make sure you get it right. And so when you look at the technical performance of that spur, which was really, which was really poor, frankly, uh, in terms of how many people would have actually likely taken it, and at the same time, let me interrupt there, Mr. Sure. Del Duca. Sorry, but yeah. because there isn't that many people using that spur, does that mean that there's not many people going from the LRT to the go? No. What it means is that based on how the the, the connections themselves would have occurred, um, being uh, I guess the best way for me to describe it is the connections would have been somewhat cumbersome for transit riders, uh, given that there's existing bus service on that section. There's a whole variety of factors that both Metrolinx and the city take into account. There was recognition that for the investment we were proposing to make in the spur itself, uh, <clears throat> given that it would have not performed well, we figured you can provide the same connectivity to the, from the waterfront to the West Harbor Go, right through the LRT line, right up to the airport. You can provide uh, far more connectivity, far more transit for more people for what we expect will be roughly the same money. And again, when you're making a once-in-a-generation investment, you want to make sure that you're going to get it right. So we're, we're going forward uh, with, uh, with this planning work around the BRT. We've launched the RFQ for the LRT, and I should also point out we're still on track to build the new GO station at Confederation and Stony Creek and have that operating by 2021. So all in all, I think it's great news for Hamilton. You talked about the uh, 16K BRT line from uh, the waterfront up to the mountain and it being in planning stages. What does that mean? Uh, when, to, when are we at the point where we will actually see it in operation? 
so I don't know at this end. I said this today when I made the announcement. It's hard for me to give a, a definite timeline on when we'd be able to build and put the BRT into service. That's some of the work that both Metrolinx and the city will be responsible for embark on, on the planning analysis and analysis that we're funding uh, as, as part of today's announcement. I expect to be back in Hamilton, and I love coming to Hamilton to talk about transit and transportation. I expect I'll be back in Hamilton in the coming months to provide updates around timing of the BRT and cost of the BRT, and I look forward to being there to uh, provide that update when it's ready. Uh, Dedicated bus lanes, I'm presuming, with BRT, does that mean all the way up and down the mountain? So what we're talking about right now, I I guess I'll say at a conceptual level, and this really is also part of the work that the, uh, the planning study will have to take on, Uh, I suspect that some of it will be in dedicated lanes. I suspect some of them might be in mixed lanes. We have to sort through some of those details and also, you know, provide the public with the opportunity to to, uh, to give us their feedback as well. So when I come back with the update, I'm expecting to be able to tell you how much it's going to cost, what it'll actually look like, and what the timing will be like. And I hope and have that, uh, that update for the community in the next number of months. What about GO service coming into Hamilton? Once the LRT is complete and, 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 and perhaps even the BRT, what is that going to look like? Where's the GO train coming to Hamilton? Where will it go out? What will schedules be? Uh, that sort of thing with this yeah, new so, plan. So there, there, are no, there are no specific changes to what we've said in the past around how GO service will come into Hamilton based on what we announced today. One of the challenges I think a lot of your listeners will probably know is on the Lakeshore West Corridor GO, once we get past Burlington, once we get past Aldershot, right. there are track or corridor ownership. I'll call them issues because CN owns a portion or owns part of that corridor. We have a good working relationship with CN. We, we, we talk and negotiate with them and CP, both of our freight rail partners around the entire network to maximize our service. But in some cases, including on this particular section of the Lakeshore West Corridor, which is very busy for CN, uh, it makes it a bit tough for us to guarantee additional service in certain time frames. Having said that, I know Metrolinx and GO are working, again, really hard with CN to see us find ways to extend additional service. I know there's a strong desire for us to get two-way all-day 15-minute electrified service all the way to Hamilton. That's obviously my goal and objective as well. I'd love to see that happen, but we're going to have to keep working on the issues we have relating to the CN corridor ownership before I can give a a definitive timeline around when that would occur. What about adding more lines? Is that in the mix at all? Uh, Adding more lines themselves? No. I mean, we we have, well, obviously we made the announcement that, you know, beyond opening up the new station to Confederation in 2021 and having service run to Stony Creek that we're going to have new GO train service that will extend all the way out to Niagara Falls over the next few years beyond that. I think it's 2023, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I could be wrong about that. Maybe it's 2022. Don't hold me to the exact time frame because I'm just forgetting the number right now. But but certainly we're going to extend to Stony Creek and out into Niagara over the next number of years. And even that is going to require considerable work and partnership with CN because they own that corridor all the way down to Niagara Falls. So, um, you know, we're making progress. Uh, today's great news for transit in Hamilton. The province is still got the ironclad commitment of a $1 billion investment in the future of, of rapid transit for that wonderful and growing community. And I look, really look forward to having a chance to come back and provide more good news and more updates as soon as I possibly can. Does the uh, uh, the BRT, does that change things at the Hunter Street Station in any way or plans going forward with that? So again, the, the, all of those uh, all of those questions relating to design and technical uh, work, I'll call it, will uh, will be will be dealt with through the uh, planning work that Metrolinx right. and the city are going to be embarking on. And I just want to stress because we've received really uh, incredible feedback from people in Hamilton in terms of the public consultation process up until this point. It, that I suspect, because I know there's a lot of passion in the community about transit and making sure we get it right. I suspect that there'll, there'll continue to be strong input flowing from the community as there should be. And we're doing our best to listen and to learn what's best for the community. And that's one of the reasons we were able to make today's announcement. Uh, one more, and this is maybe you know a backwards way of, of asking a question I've already asked. But uh, timeline-wise, what will come first? Will they come at the same time, meaning LRT, BRT up the mountain? So, I mean, I, I can confirm that the LRT is on track to be delivered and in service by 2024. I mentioned the GO train service out to Confederation by 2021. I can't yet tell people exactly when the BRT will be in operation, but I do believe that that will be part of the update I provide in the coming months. All right. Joining us has been Minister of Transport, Stephen Del Duca. Mr. Del Duca, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you.
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Talking about, uh, well, an update really on what's happening with LRT in light to uh, in light of the spur line and such. Here's a clip of uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger enjoying the news. Uh, I'm delighted to see that we can provide more service further and from the waterfront all the way to the airport, hopefully, that will uh, will improve public transportation and get us a long way towards fulfilling the blast network. And certainly this does that in a much bigger way than the short LRT spur on uh, on James. All right, there you have it. Let's bring in Ryan McGrill, editor of Raise the Hammer. He is with us now. Hello, Ryan. How are you doing today? I'm great, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for the time. We uh, much appreciate this. Your thoughts on uh, what happened this morning and the announcements? Yeah, no, I think it's, I mean, I, it's, it basically confirms what the, you know, the rumors had been suggesting for the last two or three weeks. And, uh, and I think it's good news. Um, you know, obviously, the devil's going to be in the details. You know, um, Minister Del Duca was quite clear that this is still very much at the preliminary stage. You know, there's a lot of planning and design work that has to go into this. But uh, it, uh, you know, assuming that goes well and we end up with something that's a real bus rapid transit system, I think this is a really big win for the city. Uh, I would, you know, and I was a real stickler about joining it to uh, the go. I was real, and still am convinced it needs to be a rail line of some sort. But obviously, if that's a very expensive endeavor and it isn't worth it, then that's just plain silly. And of course, anytime, as you mentioned, you can expand BRT from one end to the other, it's going to be a lot more efficient. Uh, that being said, I think the you know the thing that I'm skeptical of uh, on all of this, and you tell me what your thoughts are, is that obviously the spur line uh, is an expensive portion of it, money that, that they're obviously questioning, and uh, and the performance doesn't appear to be there. Uh, so uh, they can obviously replace that with a more uh, uh, inexpensive bus link between the two. And then from there up the mountain, it's still planning, da 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 So I'm wondering if in the sense this is really just a cut and then, but we're going to plan to do all this uh, to sort of soften the blow of what it really is. Or are you uh, convinced that, and, and again, I asked the minister what the timeline was, will BRT uh, be available the same time as LRT? Will it, will it, it uh, be developed in conjunction with each other? Will one before, be before or after the other? He really couldn't answer that question. What are your thoughts on this is smoke and mirrors for we just don't want to build the spur? Uh, you know, I, I'd like to give the government the benefit of the doubt. You know, we criticize governments for... I always love for, to give them the benefit of the doubt, Ryan. Unfortunately, <laughs> I get disappointed a lot, but go ahead. Sure. Okay, so so we, we criticize governments for spending money to build things for political reasons, you know, that, that aren't necessary for operational reasons. And so they did their technical analysis on that spur line, and they found that the value for money is not there. Yeah. It's going to cost a lot of money. To you know, to, to lay those tracks, to rebuild the road infrastructure, and for that two-kilometer north-south spur, we're not going to get the value back. We are getting the value for the east-west line, and we're going ahead with that. But that two-kilometer bit, it just the, the the benefit that came from it didn't justify the cost. And so they said, okay, what can we do with this money that's going to provide a much bigger overall benefit for the given cost? And since the that spur was supposed to be the first part of a north-south rapid transit line running from the airport to the waterfront anyway, they said, why don't we just do the whole thing now? Uh, you know, it's, I think they're trying to do the right thing here. Um, uh, does it say that there isn't enough ridership uh, on the LRT that will link the go to warrant that, or is it just the spurs too dang expensive? I think the problem was that the spur was just too much money for too small of a of a bank. Yeah. And uh, and the and of course the the ridership on the east west line, you know, it, on opening day it's going to be one of the top performing systems in North America. So the ridership is already there for the east west portion. The north south portion we need to build up that ridership. Now the city started with an A line express bus I think a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, it's got a bus running every half an hour. That's sort of the beginning of building up that ridership and capacity along that A-line. You know, there's a, a number of, of good destinations along that corridor. More kind of, um, you know, like not so much out to the airport because there's not really a lot of traffic going there right now. Yeah. And I think over their analysis phase, we're going to have to figure out, okay, what really is the best route that we can take that's going to hit the most uh, the most destinations. I personally think it makes sense to go up and swing by Mohawk College along the way. I mean, that's yeah. a big trip generator. Yeah. And uh, and I think it would be crazy to have a, a, a rapid transit line that doesn't connect to our college. Those kinds of decisions are going to come out in the detailed design work that's going to happen in the next couple of years. So I'm kind of going to reserve judgment and see uh, where they come down on those kinds of decisions. 
Uh, BRT normal transit. Does this need a dedicated lane in order to be successful or just less stops? You know, I mean, if, 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 if all you have is just buses running in mixed traffic, that's not rapid transit by any meaningful definition of the term. You know, normally to be full rapid transit, it needs to be running in dedicated lanes. You need to have stations where you prepay for fast boarding. And the location of the stations kind of finds sort of the best balance of, of accessibility and speed. So again, you know, Minister Del Duca was not, um, you know, he wasn't providing any detail this morning. But, you know, and as he said, the, the design and the analysis is still being done. My hope and my expectation is that they're going to be committed to putting it on dedicated lanes for as much as the route as possible. Otherwise, it's really just a glorified express bus. Where do you see this going? Um, you mean because you know, I mean you know if you're gonna if 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 you're gonna have dedicated lanes, it is gonna change traffic. It is gonna change. It is gonna change the structure of the route system. It's gonna change the structure of the road system. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in in the lower city, that's tricky. Um, you know, certainly there's not any room. Uh, I think on James Street North right now, or even James Street South, to run dedicated lanes. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it could be. You know, there's there's a few options. One would be to go down one street and up another street, you know, like, so example, down James, and then back up Bay, possibly. Uh, I think once you get to going up and down the escarpment, there's certainly room on the Claremont for dedicated lanes. You know, it's six lanes wide, and it's got enough traffic to carry four. Um, and I think when you get to Upper James, that's going to be politically challenging, because yeah. Upper James is a fairly, uh, it's a quite a busy street right now. But I think if you design this well, and if you implement it well, the amount of, of people you'll be able to convey in dedicated lanes with a high-quality line is actually significantly higher than the number of people you can convey of people in individual cars. Ryan McGreal has been with us, editor of Raise the Hammer. Got to cut you off there, Ryan. Thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, I don't know how many people have an appetite for electoral reform. Probably about as many people that have an appetite for ward boundaries uh, from a municipal standpoint. And um, the only one that seems to be complaining about the way we elect people uh, in, in, in any country are, are those that usually have lost the last election, whatever party that they are from. So uh, I, I guess, should we be surprised that... Uh, Prime Minister it's 900 CH Malam Scott Thompson promises and uh, leaves things the status quo, which uh, probably nobody really ever cares about. Uh, this is what uh, Corina Gould, the Minister of Democratic Institutions, had to say about electoral reform and why they've decided to park it. I read the entire report, all 300 pages, and truly thank the members of the committee for doing a very thorough and extensive analysis of our electoral system and see quite clearly that there isn't a consensus on how to move forward. Uh, As you can imagine, the opposition uh, jumped all over it, Um, although... I don't know how the I don't know how the conservatives could really with uh, without at least you know smirking, uh, but Thomas Mulcair was very upset. A political party promises something in order to get elected and to appear progressive, <laughs> but then once elected, they shamelessly break that promise. I would call that a massive political deception. There you have it. Uh, a lot of that stuff going around lately, it seems. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Peter Grape is with us, uh, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is on the line now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Great, thanks. So uh, would you be interested in reading all 300 pages on electoral reform that uh, Karina Gould was talking about? Uh, not really, although it's a bit odd that uh, she seemed to feel she should get a medal for having done so. <laughs> yeah, really. Isn't that part of the gig? Yeah, I would have thought it was part of the job, and I would have thought she might have done more than just read the 300 pages in terms of thinking about this issue. But uh, uh, I guess that's how we speak in politics today. So are you surprised at any of this? Uh, Not really. Uh, I mean, I I was surprised when uh, Justin Trudeau made the promise during the last election campaign. Uh, It didn't seem like a promise that he would have had any intention to, to keep. Uh, I mean, I was surprised when uh, he decided to push forward with the promise uh, rather than just burying it soon after he got elected. Um, But I wasn't surprised at this uh, ending because uh, throughout the whole process, it seemed like it had been one that had been set up to fail, whether it was appointing uh, a junior minister who seemed not terribly strong in uh, in Ms. Monsef to hold the file at first, 
uh, you know, whether it was uh, an unwillingness to really hold consultations except in the summer when no one was going to, uh, you know, follow them, whether it was trying to sabotage the committee's report and then treating it contemptuously and then setting up some sort of parallel uh, and strange exercise in, in getting people to fill out these questions about their values in electoral systems. I mean, all of that pointed to a, a deliberate attempt to, to kill it off. Although even, you know, with each of those attempts, it was a bit surprising that they just didn't uh, bite the bullet because the longer they let it run, the more the bad faith in terms of keeping the promise became evident. Uh, it was odd that he said that this was the last uh, election that would be fought on that system uh, after he won. A campaign, a campaign promise is one thing, but why would you say something after you'd won? Uh, well, I guess he wanted to keep his... Uh, uh, he wanted to keep his honeymoon going as mm. long as possible. I mean, it was an important question, and I think this is part of the reason why you have someone like uh, Thomas Mulcair uh, sounding so upset about it and saying, you know, it was a, a promise to appear progressive because it was very much about trying to uh, appeal to part of the electorate that swings between the Green Party, the NDP, and the Liberal Party uh, in making that promise during the election. So I, I presume Trudeau wanted to make sure that those people continued on in the honeymoon uh, after he was elected, uh, and I think he felt that he could uh, do this uh, maneuver, which I think remains a liberal strategy, uh, where he continues to be the person who talks about change and, and delivers change, and then, well, there's this unfortunate thing like the liberal government that somehow sometimes fails or has to make compromises, and I think they felt they could probably run this in a similar way, where he could say he wanted to do that and then rely on the, the divisions between the Conservatives and the NDP about the, the policy and, and pin the blame on the other parties for not allowing it to go forward. Uh, this certainly can be labeled by the opposition as a broken promise. Do Canadians care? Uh, on the whole, uh, no. Well, I mean, I think uh, they probably don't care about a broken promise about electoral reform. Uh, they probably uh, expect that politicians uh, don't always uh, follow through on their promises. Uh, nevertheless, I think... Uh, for Trudeau, who's beginning to come down off you know, a very long honeymoon that he had, uh, this adds up with a number of other uh, situations where he becomes to be seen as less truthful, uh, less than truthful. And in that context, it does have an impact on his, uh, uh, on his popularity. It also has an impact on his capacity in the next election to try and win back the votes uh, that he moved by making this promise last time. So, I mean, it does have some longer-term impacts, but on the other hand, when you're Prime Minister, you have uh, other tools you can use to try and win back those voters. And so things like meeting the Syrian refugees at the Toronto airport a year ago probably uh, can be mobilized in the next election, uh, and that will be as effective a counter to this broken promise as a, on electoral reform uh, as I think he can muster. How do the, uh, how do the PCs take advantage of this? Uh, obviously, we know Mulcair's point of view. H- how do they score points with it? Uh, this is probably not going to be the strongest one uh, for them, uh, because ultimately they were themselves opposed to a change in the current system. Uh, the idea that you have a prime minister who doesn't tell the truth uh, is always useful, particularly when he came out and said it so cleanly. So, I mean, I think they can use it in that manner, uh, but it's a bit harder for them otherwise to, to make a lot of hay uh, off this broken promise. Uh, they might nevertheless try to make the argument that it shows their effectiveness as an opposition party because they were able uh, to you know, prevent this from happening, even though I'm not sure the, the, the government really wanted it to happen. And they could also say, well, they managed to win this idea that there should be a referendum on, on electoral change, uh, which, again, they might be able to sell to their membership. Are they, again, are these kitchen table issues that Canadians are that concerned about when it comes to breaking promises? Eh, this is one of those ones, who cares? Would they look at it in that respect? Uh, yeah, I think in many ways. I mean, again, people uh, have very multi- mutually uh, contradictory opinions. Uh, so for most people, the electoral system, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, when we get governments elected with 39, 40% of the vote, they say, well, wait a second, how come we've got governments voted in and then holding almost all the power for four years and they you know, only get two votes out of five? So, again, depending on how you ask people the question, they come to, to different answers. Uh, I don't think this particular broken promise is going to have a lot of widespread resonance, but uh, you know, the, the question of electoral form is uh, important to people, again, if, if asked uh, in that manner. Will Mulcair continue to make hay of this? Uh, I suspect so. Uh, again, because... Uh, he I, is good at it. 
He is good at it. And uh, again, part of the question is who's being reached by this, right? The, for the population as a whole, it's maybe not a huge issue. Uh, but for maybe 10% of Canadians who uh, the Liberals and the NDP will be fighting over in the next election, it's probably an important issue. Maybe not the defining issue, but one that can be crystallized as saying, wait a second, if you're, if you're whoever replaces Mulcair for the NDP leader, you can go and say, wait a second, Trudeau's saying all these things in this election, but is he really going to deliver? Remember that electoral reform promise. And so this is important in the, in the context of elections where recently, and I suspect this is while the next federal election is going to run, is that the Liberal leader is going to say, look at that big, scary Conservative leader, whoever it is. Uh, if you don't want them to be in power, you've got to vote for me. And the NDP will be trying to say, no, we're the people who can best be that big, scary Conservative leader. And so the first half of an electoral campaign is very much almost a primary about who's going to run against the Conservatives. And so those 10% of voters in the total electorate that swing between the two parties are actually pretty important in determining, you know, which party then becomes the one to rally around against the Conservatives. Where, how does this sit with Canadians considering, uh, and not so much the, on electoral reform, but the fact that it was a broken promise? And again, uh, you know, whether the issue determines whether that's important or the fact that it, the promise was broken, we'll wait to see. But uh, considering where the world is right now and what's going on south of the border in, in the context of, of life uh, as we see it today, how do Canadians view this? Do they look at this, well, it's just the world we live in. Look, even Trudeau lies or breaks his promises. Where does that leave us? Well, I mean, I think you're right that for a lot of people it becomes something that's not front and center. I think it becomes more of a political resource uh, looking forward. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably a clear uh, situation uh, in terms of a, a very clearly stated promise which wasn't followed uh, as compared to other uh, situations that may have more real-world consequences for people, uh, you know, for instance, uh, decisions around pipelines and so on, that uh, the promises were fuzzier to start with, uh, although the impacts are clearer. So, yeah, I mean, I suspect it's going to be ignored, but it, it, it has, uh, I think, at election time, a kind of residence uh, for parties that are trying to fight off the Liberals, and particularly the NDP and the Greens, who will be trying to sustain an electoral base against the Liberal Party, saying we're the only opposition to the Conservatives. And so that's a way for them to say, yes, but what do you really stand for? Do you, do you really promise change that's meaningful? Do you think we will start to see what it, we're seeing in the U.S. creep into uh, our politics in the sense of uh, uh, Liberals will, conser- you know, will, will um, uh, try to portray uh, Conservatives as being like Donald Trump, uh, vice versa, back and forth. Are, are we going to see that? And, and considering what's happened uh, specifically with travel bans now, where does that leave candidates in the PC federal leadership run? Well, I, I mean, I think the Conservative Party in part is making up a decision about what is an acceptable form of uh, conservatism. Uh, for a long time, voices uh, you know, further to the right, uh, certainly more exclusivist about who could be a Canadian, uh, have been marginalized inside the Conservative Party. Right? They grew up a bit in the Reform Party, but Preston Manning then shut them down as he tried to move to respectability in the 1990s. Uh, this PC leadership race with you know, some of the candidates and some of the appeals and the tactics they're using uh, are trying to say, well, no, wait a second, this has been successful in the States, we want to bring this to Canada. Uh, there's other candidates saying, wait a second, that, you know, A, it may not be that successful because <laughs> it's a different country, we've got different demographics, we've got a different electoral system, uh, it might not work the same way. And, and, but others saying, too, no, we don't want that kind of politics here, it's not uh, how we, we see things working. So I think uh, this, the, the Conservative leadership campaign will uh, answer a good part of your question uh, in terms of uh, will, we see that, uh, will we see that kind of politics here, depending on who wins. Uh, you know, I think we'll see that. I mean, I, clearly, uh, the Liberal Party has long uh, tried to run against the Conservatives when there's Republican uh, presidents by saying, wait a second, you're too close to them, you're too close to George Bush, now it's going to be you're too tr- close to, to Donald Trump. So, I mean, I think they'll see that as a resource, at least as long as uh, a large number of Canadians uh, are a bit critical of uh, the U.S. president. Um, but uh, the ability to really pin that on a leader uh, I think will depend on who was chosen. I mean, they tried to pin George Bush on Stephen Harper, and they were such, you know, they're sufficiently different in, mm-hmm. in, in their style. Uh, in, you know, I mean, one was very cerebral, the other very folksy. Uh, their policies didn't always really look that much alike. 
Uh, so it wasn't necessarily that effective, uh, but it remains to be seen. You could probably pin that label much more uh, on a Kevin O'Leary, although even there he's he's making sounds about how he doesn't really want to be in that space. It would be harder to probably pin that label on a Maxime Bernier or a Michael Chong. You talked about uh, whether the strategy is successful or not. Are people uh, convinced it's successful in the United States? I guess in the fact that uh, Trump has won the election, but considering how the first couple of weeks have gone, uh, can you see conservatives pulling back on this? Perhaps. <laughs> I mean, it really. I mean, it depends on on really what you see the ends of of the politics being, and also uh, again whether you think Trump uh, everything that Trump does is one of the same, or whether you could have someone who was elected and you would get if you like the. The parts that uh, the the conservatives would like about Trump, without the parts that you don't like. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's kind of hard to to know uh, which way that's going to go. But uh, yeah, I mean, does it work in the states? I mean, it works in terms of getting elected. Uh, you've got. Uh, I mean, if well, Trump, I guess my question is here, Peter. How's the protest vote playing now? Uh, in the United States. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, to me, what's more interesting is that you've got, I mean, Trump looks like he has all this power, but he only really has the power because there's a Republican Congress that is willing to give it to him. Uh, They're sufficiently either supportive of his views or afraid of paying a price if they stand up to Trump that they're uh, willing to support his nominees and willing to support his policy direction. So, you know, as much as we we make it about Trump, I mean, Trump is successful because there's a lot of like-minded people sitting in Congress who, who have likewise been successful running on those ideas and maybe see an opportunity to to push their ideas further under a president who who wants to go wholeheartedly in that direction. Uh, The the unfortunate thing with with Donald Trump is his methods usually uh, overshadow anything that he does have to say. I'm not sure if that's good or bad. Uh, What do you make of the tough talk and, and how this is playing? Uh, what the tough talk with foreign leaders, or the yeah, tough talk you know, I mean, with hanging up, hang, hanging up on the uh, on the prime minister of uh, Australia and 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 just in, in Mexico, tough talk and such, and and what he is say, putting uh, people on notice and, and this sort of thing, you know. Uh, and we're going to get tough. We're going to get tough. America's been taken advantage of. We're going to get tough. What about that mantra? Uh, well, it may be successful in the short term. But it, it's burning up, you know, political capital at a huge rate, right? Uh, it's hard to think of a, a stronger relationship than that between Australia and the United States. I mean, Australia went and fought in Vietnam. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's uh, a very uh, important ally, but one which is also looking to China at the moment uh, in terms of its centrality in, in Asian trade. And so... In that context, to have a, a president who doesn't tend the relationship, I mean, in the short term, he can, you know, bully his way or he can refuse to take the uh, 1,200 refugees that, you know, is at the base of this uh, this dispute. But in the long run, it comes at a cost of America's uh, geopolitical interests in terms of having a series of allies around the world. So, uh, I mean, the tough talk can win things in the short term. If you're the United States with the economic and military power you have, uh, you can have a string of victories with that kind of tough talk. But it's all today. I mean, you've burned that capital for its use in the future. Good point. Peter Grave has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Thank you, Peter. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Uh, phone lines always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Alex is on the line, wants to talk about electoral reform. How do you feel about uh, the Prime Minister uh, flip-flopping on this? Do you care? No, not not really, Scott. I, I didn't recall it being a big, big part of their platform anyway during the election. Um, I, I remember, you know, them mentioning it and everything, but that's that's not why people voted or didn't vote for for the Liberals. Um, I was actually more surprised, actually, after uh, that they won. They got the majority that he had mentioned it on election night, and I thought, oh, yeah, he, he did say that, and I thought, that's what I thought was, to me. That's what I, 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 my point was to, uh, to Peter Graff, is that, you know, things that you say when you're running during the campaign, that's one thing, but to stand up and make it part of your victory speech, yeah. uh, it's kind of odd. It's yeah. almost Donald Trumpish when you think about it. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. yeah. And, uh, no, so I, I don't think it's uh, it's... Uh, for the average person, because I didn't think that there was, and I think once the, the, the Trudeau government, once they did that, 
that survey or whatever it was they did, I think they found that there really wasn't much appetite from people. And also, too, back, I think it was about 15 years ago, I believe it was British Columbia had a referendum on uh, electoral reform, and they included the proportional representation, and it was turned down flatly by people indicated that they were more or less, you know, happy with the, the system that we have already, even though it's... Ontario's the same way. You know, I, I think, do, do you think that we'll see that'll be it for electoral reform? Because really now neither party can say anything about it because, you no. know. <laughs> no, I, 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 I Is think that so, it for the next I, 20 I, I years? I think that there's, there's more, you know, pressing issues that people are really caring about. And I never bought this argument for people that wanted the, uh, the uh, PR system that, oh, only... Only 39% yeah. of the people voted for Trudeau or, or Harper or whatever. Well, when you got three national parties to begin with, yep. you're, you're never going to get, and, you know, three national parties and a bunch of, you know, smaller fringe parties and everything, you're never, ever going to get 50% of the vote anyway. So that, that's, that's, uh, that's a, to me, that's a non-issue, really. And I don't really buy the attitude, well, you know, everybody's a winner, there's no losers. You know, like, you know, it, it's like, no, there's winners and losers in elections. And that's the way it is. And the system overall, with all of its faults, if it's done correctly and if Parliament is run correctly, is a pretty good system and has served Canada pretty good, I think, anyway. All of a sudden, uh, electoral reform is starting to sound like Little League soccer. Yeah. <laughs> good, good point. Exactly. Alex, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. Okay, cheers. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Trump has adopted a uh, adopted a very aggressive demeanor when it comes to uh, other countries or pretty much anybody who speaks out against him. Uh, and we've talked about this before. Uh, to me, this is like the art of the deal. He goes in hard like a bull in a china shop. And before he even gets to a meeting with somebody, whether it's, whatever it has to do with, whether it has to do with summoning on Apprentice or somebody in an oil country, uh, you know, he'll, you know, we're going to kill that deal. We're going to da, 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 da. We're going to take it to town. We're going to cut off the funding. We're going to do this. So by the time you get into the meeting with the guy, you're so sweating and, and in the fetal position crying that you're just useless. You're just a pile of goo. And you're, you know, by the time you get into the meeting, you're disarmed. You, he's already got an advantage. But how long does that work? You know, to the point where people, oh, he's crying wolf now. He's going to come in, he's going to kick some chairs around, and then once he settles down, we got him. I mean, that's just the way that sort of thing works, isn't it? Uh, that seems to be the approach, though, that Trump is taking. And whether his policy is right or wrong or his ideology is right or wrong, we lose this in his buffoonery. We lose this in his lack of respect for everyone else who doesn't share the same opinion that he does. So to talk more about all of this, Simon Palomar is with us, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon is with us now. Hello, Simon. How are you today? All right, Scott. How are you? I'm doing uh, very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. A lot thought that once Trump got in, he may act presidential. There were those that said, are you kidding? He's not doing it now. He didn't do it through the primaries. Why would he once he uh, becomes president? Are you still surprised at the tough talk approach he's, he's using? Uh, at this point, um, the the talk is not too surprising. It's it's become, you know, I think you kind of hit on it in the introduction. It's become an expected part of his style, the way he wants to, uh, you know, announce these new policies, or even if he's not really announcing a new policy, like we saw the other week with uh, his executive order to fund the wall on the border with Mexico. You know, there wasn't very much substance to the policy, but what it lets, it lets them do is, you know, talk tough, use uh, some really, you know, ear-catching language, make a big deal of it, and uh, and very much, you know, remind his supporters or tell his supporters that, you know, all those things I promised to do, I'm going to do them. Whether or not there's a whole lot of substance behind them, whether or not we're actually seeing major policies change is another matter. But at this point, it does look like, you know, for the foreseeable future, this is how he feels comfortable operating. You know, it's very much campaign mode still. It's very much reality TV mode still. And that's, uh, I think right now, that's the reasonable way to kind of expect him to keep acting. Is he doing himself any favors? Is he making life more difficult for himself? Arguably, yes. Um, 
not might not be too surprising, but your listeners may have heard something in the news about uh, him speaking with the Australian Prime Minister over the weekend about uh, a number of issues. It's not clear what they were supposed to talk about, but apparently the the telephone call, you know, fell apart fairly quickly when. Uh, President Trump told the Australian Prime Minister that they, uh, the United States, would not take a certain number of refugees that were uh, that are currently staying on an Australian island, and in a, in a previously agreed upon deal between the United States government and Australia, the U.S. would take these refugees and settle them in the United States. Said, you know, he wouldn't do it, and the deal, the discussion broke down from there, and. Apparently, the language, you know, between the two men got quite uh, got quite fierce. So, well, it might make for good uh, good politics in the United States, particularly amongst the people who voted for him and are still enthusiastic about his presidency. It might make uh, it might be very good for him to reach out to them by using you know really tough, aggressive language uh, when it comes to dealing with other you know leaders around the world, other presidents, prime ministers who have responsibility you know, to their countries, that taking that aggressive language is probably not the best idea, especially when there are, you know, major issues on the table. You know, Australia and the United States have been allies for decades now. Both of them are very concerned about China uh, and China's ambitions in the Pacific Ocean. Donald Trump getting into a war of words, getting into a fight with the Australian government is probably not the wisest course of action there, since, well, the Australian government is concerned about China. There are some people in the country who feel that the Australia, Australia should get closer to China. So when big issues are on the line, um, insulting your counterparts who you need to work with isn't always the best. It's not always the best way to, to win their support. Here's what Trump had to say on that phone call. When you hear about the tough phone calls I'm having, don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. They're tough. We have to be tough. It's time we're going to be a little tough, folks. We're taken advantage of by every nation in the world virtually. It's not going to happen anymore. Uh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It almost sounds like a line out of The Sopranos. Yeah, there is a dismissive element to it. Um, I think what's important to understand is um, when... Donald Trump uses that language. It, it, it suggests that, for example, that you know Barack Obama or uh, George W. Bush, you know, weren't tough or didn't stand up for American interests or didn't uh, didn't you know have harsh words for their allies if they disagreed on something. And I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. So a lot of this is simply, uh, you know, right now, it's, I, I think it's probably more aimed at a domestic audience, uh, particularly, you know, like I said, his supporters. He still, you know, has a couple of fights coming up, a couple of cabinet appointees who are looking like uh, they might not get confirmed. There's a slight chance they won't. Just nominated a Supreme Court justice. So it's important for Republicans and for Trump to keep energy amongst their supporters up get them, you know, phoning our Congress people, et cetera. So, you know, I understand why he's doing it, but uh, frankly, you know, there's a difference between being tough and uh, being uh, insulting and uh, getting on the phone with, you know, a longstanding ally and dismissing their, their concerns and their national interests out of hand and telling them that, well, your interests don't matter. Give me whatever I want. That's kind of a, that's not being tough. I mean, that's being uh, potentially reckless and foolish. Uh, Simon, I'm sure this isn't the first time two leaders of two countries have gotten into a disagreement and maybe even hung up on each other and dropped a few F-bombs along the way. How did we find out about this? How do we know about it? Uh, and did anybody hang up on anybody? What do we know? Well, we don't, yeah, this, that, those are good questions. I mean, of course, people do exchange harsh words. Uh, and I'm guessing most of the time it's behind closed doors and we just don't hear about it. Absolutely. There tends to be an understanding that, you know, uh, making policy and foreign policy can be a rough business. Even the best of allies, you know, don't see eye to eye on everything. And when you get into issues of, uh, you know, peace and war, life and death, uh, the economic future of your country, emotions can run high. And everybody understands that. So, you know, there are tough words exchanged, including between, you know, Canadian president, prime ministers and American presidents. It's happened many times. 
typically there is an agreement that, you know, this is not the sort of stuff you leak. What happened here is that you know, it appears that, you know, someone in the Australian government may have been particularly frustrated and simply said, leaked the, the, the details of the phone call. Uh, the Australian prime minister has denied that there were, that, it, that, you know, anybody hung up on anybody else. Mm-hmm. They had a good conversation that they, you know, reaffirmed their commitment to the Australian-U.S. alliance and that the, their shared interests. But I think one of the things that might have um, led to this confrontation here was, or, these are all alleged rumors, but that Trump got on the phone and simply started talking about, you know, his election victory, how great things were going for him, and how, you know, Australia had to start giving, you know, the United States what it wanted. And though I could be incorrect, I do believe that has been the first phone call between these two men. So it, it's a rough way to start out <laughs> wow. a relationship. With your ally. With your ally. And then to take your ally to task over, you know, what's really a fairly minor issue, at least in terms of dollars and cents. It wouldn't be particularly costly to resettle this, this number of refugees. Uh, these are all people who have been you know, examined by um, Australian you know, customs and immigration officials. These are low-risk individuals. Uh, this is something that had been agreed on. This is not a, an issue of major national interest, but instead the rumor is that President Trump was concerned, well, it's going to look very politically bad on me if on the one hand I uh, write an executive order putting a, a pause on on refugee resettlement, and then on the other hand, honor this commitment I made. I mean, in many ways, I hate to say that the, the lives of uh, you know 1,100 people and their future doesn't matter, but in the grand scheme of things and the, some of the, the very large and potentially very serious issues that Australia and the United States are going to have to work on together, such as you know China uh, building military bases throughout the you know, Pacific Ocean, this is sort of a, a small issue and one where, where I think it was kind of assumed on the Australian side that the United States would honor its commitment and to, uh, to level a bunch of insults you know, on the first call with a longstanding ally over a fairly minor issue, it, it probably was seen as simply if this is how the relationship is going to work, this is a bad signal and there need to, there need to be consequences. Hmm. So what happens when Trump needs allies? What well, happens I mean, when there's a world event, there's something that happens and, and, and he's, he needs something from these people? You know, and that's that's of course the the you know the sixty four thousand dollar question, or I suppose now there's a million dollar question, however you want to frame it. Um, typically, you know, Canada and the United States, for example, I'll use our two countries as an example, have um, you know, in a hot and cold relationship. Sometimes we get along better than at other times. Of course, uh, some presidents are far more popular in the United in Canada than others. I mean. It goes almost without saying that Barack Obama was much more popular than uh, George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, when in government, we tend to think of, you know, there are interests, things in the world that we want. You know, we want uh, uh, we don't want to go to war with China. We want a stable, prosperous, peaceful China, for example. And therefore, we're going to work together to have, you know, trade policies and diplomatic policies towards China to do that. We're going to do it because it's in our interest. We're going to work with the Americans because it's in our interest. So the, a lot of the thinking right now is that, you know, allies, traditional allies, the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, France, Australia, will overlook any slights, insults, incendiary language, and on the big important issues, you know, stand firm and say, you know, we're still going to work with the United States. In Canada, for example, we have a treaty commitment with the United States uh, through NATO. So when the United States was attacked on September 11th, they invoked the NATO treaty, said, we've been attacked, we want our NATO allies to come to our aid. Canada did so. I, that's the attitude that I'm, you know, getting a, detecting in Ottawa, other places right now. That that's how it's going to be. Yeah. The flip side of that is, I think some people are increasingly concerned that Donald Trump just may not simply see things that way. That if you've made a commitment, 
that you have mutual interests, you stand by those people with mutual interests. Now, some people in this cabinet certainly think that way. Uh, Jim Mattis is Secretary of Defense, highly respected, consummate professional soldier. Uh, he certainly sees the world in that, that first way that I described. The question is, does Trump see the same? So I think right now Donald Trump in the United States will have allies when he needs them, mm. so long as he can demonstrate that he'll be there for uh, when, when his allies need him. Uh, what about putting Iran on notice, as he did yesterday? Yeah, that's, again, a very, you know, I think that goes back to what we talked about at the start of our conversation, that a lot of this language is is directed at his supporters, and it's, uh, and it's more noise than substance. Um, in this case, it was Michael Flynn, his national security advisor, who, who gave him out, gave a press statement and yeah, literally said Iran is officially on notice, um, whatever that means. Now, this was after Iran tested a ballistic missile the other day. And Iran is supposed to not be testing ballistic missiles. Uh, the United Nations Security Council has issued uh, resolutions telling them to stop. You know, many countries want Iran to stop its ballistic missile tests. They go ahead with them anyways. What this means in terms of doing anything, I mean, is very unclear because there are a couple of, you know, very sensitive issues between Iran and the United States. And first and foremost is, you know, the fact that Iran has been trying to build a nuclear weapon off and on for some time now and agreed to a deal with the United States that they won't make any further efforts for 15 years in exchange for sanctions relief and things like that. Now, it's not a perfect deal, and Republicans have attacked this deal, but the Trump administration has said, more or less, that we're still going to abide by it, that this ballistic missile issue, we're going to treat that separately, because nobody wants Iran racing to build a nuclear weapon right now. So this may have just been tough talk, you know, signaling to Iran that, you know, we are still watching you, we mm -hmm. still might sanction you for missile tests, which is exactly the same thing that the Barack Obama administration right. did. But it might be just part of this this you know, Trumpian uh, messaging style to, to pretend you're still in campaign mode, to use you know one-liners, tough talk, create excitement. And even if you're not going to do anything tremendously different, signal that you know, your attitude has changed. Interesting. Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.